You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. As I look into your faces this morning, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that many of you are enjoying right now in your spiritual pilgrimage the most intensely intimate fellowship with the Lord you can ever remember. In fact, to be quite honest, I have been startled to receive almost daily reports from individuals during these past several weeks who have said, I don't know when I have so sensed the presence of the Lord in my life and in our church. I've never sensed his hand upon me in such a significant fashion. And Brother Tom, it's wonderful to awake in the morning to the sound of God's trumpets in my heart and to go before him in prayer in my prayer closet and to lift my voice in praise to him and to know that the Lord Jesus, who is my shepherd, will lead me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And it's wonderful, isn't it, to know that when you are walking with Jesus, he in turn is sovereignly guiding your footsteps. He's empowering you. I don't know when I've ever heard so many testimonies of answers to prayer. I don't know when I've ever sensed God so alive in a church family and in a church fellowship. But there's one thing about a flock of sheep, dear folks, and that is that while we may all be together in this place this morning, we are not all together. For while some of you would say, quite honestly, This is my most wonderful time of fellowship that I can remember since the day of my salvation. You could possibly be seated next to someone who would say, these days are my days of darkest despair. These are not days of warm fellowship. These are days when I sense a chill in my relationship with God. Oh, it's not that I don't know there is a God. It's not that I haven't come to Jesus by faith and trusted in Jesus alone for my salvation. It's not that I'm not keenly sensitive to the fact that God has a plan for my life. But someplace along the way, something has happened. And I sense a growing coldness in that relationship. Am I backslidden? Is it possible that I never trusted in Jesus in the first place? Or is it possible that as one of the shepherd's sheep, something has happened which is so sad and so tragic that I cannot ever find my way back to that kind of fellowship as a member of his flock that I once sensed, that I once felt? And there are those of you who can remember other days when you were more interested in the Scripture other days when you were more vitally involved in a ministry of prayer, other days when you were more quick to witness and bear the gospel to those who needed so desperately to hear about Jesus. But those days are gone. And in these days, you are beginning to quietly wonder, can it ever be that way again? Or is it possible that God somehow, by the ministry and through the work of His Holy Spirit, would fan the flames of revival in my heart? Is it possible 
that I have out in front of me, days which are more wonderful than I have ever yet experienced. This morning, I'm going to be preaching a message entitled, What Happens When You Can't Get Back to God? What happens when you can't get back to God? For you see, this is the testimony that I'm hearing from some people. Brother Tom, it's not only true that there were days when my fellowship and walk with God were more intimate and more joy-filled. Those days have gone. The sad thing which has happened to me is the growing awareness that not only am I not really with the Lord in my daily walk, but I thought that if I just made up my mind I wanted to be more dedicated, I would be more dedicated. I thought if I just made up my mind that I wanted that fellowship to be more intimate, that it would just be more intimate. I thought if I decided that I was just going to be filled with the joy of the Lord, that I would be filled with the joy of the Lord. But Brother Tom, I've come to a point where not only is it not like it ought to be, I can't even make myself want to want that it should be like it ought to be. I've lost the victory. I've lost the joy. I've lost the power in that relationship. What happens when you can't get back to God? Now, I'm speaking to those of you who know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are born again. You see, some of you who are here this morning would say, quite honestly, I've been playing religion. Some of you would have to say, quite honestly, I do not have the certainty if I died I would spend my eternity with the Lord God in heaven. Some of you would have to say, while I have been down an aisle and I've been baptized and I've said the words, I have never completely transferred my trust to Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. I never repented of my sins. I never turned from them. As a matter of fact, I just said one day, I love God. I want to live like a Christian. I've tried to live it. Some of you would have to say, quite honestly, I don't have the certainty that I'm genuinely born again. But to those of you who can say, even in my despair, I know, and I know that I know that I'm born again. I know somehow that I'm a member of God's family. For you see, God does that to truly born-again people. The Bible says His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And I'm speaking to those of you who would say quite honestly, while I know beyond any shadow of a doubt I'm one of God's sheep, I do know this, it's not with me and God as it used to be. It is not with God and I as it ought to be. And I'm wondering what's going to happen to me because I have tried to make it better. I've tried to regain that enthusiasm, but it seems that I can't get back to God in that same old way. What happens when you can't get back to God? This morning, dear friend, I want to bring you what I believe is one of the strongest words of encouragement in all of the Scripture. Did you know that your shepherd, if you are truly a child of God, one of his sheep, your shepherd has promised that he will restore your soul? And so this morning, I want to speak to you on that promise, the promise of revival. What happens when you can't get back? Not what should you do, but what happens when you can't get back? He promises revival revival to his sheep. Now, there's several thoughts that I want to share with you this morning. And so with your Bible open to this 23rd Psalm, let's look at verse 3, the first part, he will restore or he restoreth, you have it there, my soul. Now, there are two words that I need to describe. First, the word restore. In the original language, it means to turn back again. 
Secondly, the word soul. In the Bible, we know that God created us as physical beings. With our five senses, we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch. We know beyond that that we are also spiritual beings. We're spiritual because the Bible says God created us in his own image. And as Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is a spirit. And it is in our spirit that God speaks to us by his spirit through the word of God, the Holy Bible. But there is another part of your personality which the Bible calls your soul, or often it uses another word, your heart. Those words are used interchangeably. What is your soul or your heart? Well, looking through the Scripture, we discover that the soul is the seat of our intellect, our thinking process, our mind. Secondly, it is also the seat of our emotions, how we feel about certain issues. And thirdly, it is where we make decisions regarding our behavior. It is our volition, our place of choice, our intellect, our emotion, and our will. And so what's happened when a person can't get back to God involves the soul. Why, in your mind you say, I want to get back to God, but I can't make myself do whatever it is I, I think I know I need to do to get back to God. I wish I could, but I just can't find my way back. Secondly, it is in your soul that your emotions begin to run dry. And some of you would say, I don't know when. I have gone through the actions of my Christian faith without having any less joy than I have right now. And finally, it is the seat of your volition or your will. And some of you would say, if I could just make myself do the things I know a Christian ought to do. If I could just make myself read the Bible more, if I could make myself be loving, if I could make myself be more intimately involved in prayer with God, I would. But I can't even make myself choose to do that any longer. Well, what is the promise of revival? It is a sovereign act of God. He restoreth my soul. Now, notice these three thoughts. First, there is design in the direction of your life. Let me say it again. There is design in the direction of your life. Now, when a shepherd accepts the responsibility of tending a flock of sheep, he does not do it just because he likes fellowship with sheep. There is a purpose in his doing this. He doesn't just take those sheep and wander about aimlessly. In fact, we see this in this psalm as we have studied it phrase by phrase. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. He leadeth me beside these still waters. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The shepherd always has a purpose. And I know that some of you, perhaps this morning, as God's sheep would say, I have just felt like that some of the things which have happened to me of late have been without purpose, have been without meaning. It, it almost seems that I am wandering aimlessly about. Well, my friend, let me tell you something. There is design in God's direction for your life. There is design in the direction for your life. Now, a shepherd has two purposes intending those sheep. These same purposes are the purposes God has in ministering to your life, in directing your life. What are those two purposes? The first one is prosperity. Did you know that God desires to prosper you? 
I can hear some saying underneath their breath, is our pastor falling in to that prosperity cult? Is he going to become one of the name it, claim it guys when he speaks about prosperity? Is he saying that whatever we imagine we can have and that God intends for us to live lavishly on this earth and the more you believe in Jesus, the more lavish you can live? Well, that is an Americanization of Christianity, dear friends. It is not true scripture to equate always material prosperity with spiritual prosperity. I mean, it'd be very difficult, wouldn't it, to say that the man who's got his nose against a wall in some communist concentration camp because he loves Jesus, loves him less than you do because he's not driving a fine big car. He doesn't believe in him as much as you do because he doesn't live in a nice house. He doesn't serve him as well as you've served him because he doesn't have wonderful clothes. Well, friends, that just doesn't wash. But God does desire your prosperity. In other words, he doesn't desire for you to just live out your life on nothing but meager spiritual resources. In fact, in that wonderful passage in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, where we read about Jesus being the good shepherd and us being his sheep. He says, you know, a thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life filled up to the top and running down the sides. Really, he says it this way, life and life more abundantly. And that word in the original language means filled up, running down the sides. In other words, he has more for you than you can even imagine containing. Some years ago, when a man came from Europe, he immigrated to New York City and fell in love with America. And he decided that his family ought to live in America. And so he began trying to save money to bring his family to the United States. And it became obvious to him after a while that he had never saved that much money, at least while his family was alive. There were so many family members. And longing to see his family, he took what money he had and decided to go back to Europe. And in doing so, he bought the cheapest ticket that he could buy on the least expensive steamliner that he could find. And he gathered up a sack with some cheese and some crackers and while others were eating, he would go down in the hold of the ship and he would open that sack where the cheese was gradually turning rancid and becoming rancid and that those crackers were becoming stale. And he would cut off a little piece of that cheese and place it on those soggy crackers and he would eat it. And after about three weeks of this, friends, he became sick, deathly sick. And the ship's steward found him down in the hold of the ship. And he said, what is the matter with you? And he began to explain how sick he was. And he said, I can tell you're sick. He said, uh, but why? He said, well, it's probably this food. And the ship steward held up that sack, which was oily and greasy and smelled so rancid. He said, what is this? And he said, well, I didn't have enough money to buy my meals, and so I've been eating down here. And the ship steward looked at him and said, you idiot, don't you realize that when you purchased the ticket, your meals were included in the price? And while you've been down here cutting away on this old rancid cheese and taking these soggy crackers into your system, you could have been up in the dining room eating with the captain more food, fresh food, good food for you than you can ever imagine. 
And you would probably say with that steward, what a stupid man. But I want to tell you something. I'm looking into the faces of some people who've been eating spiritually just like that. You think that God wants you to just barely get along. You think you're just supposed to eke out a spiritual living, that you're just sort of going to have to just try to get a little bit of God's Word and understand it today, that you can have maybe a little bit of fellowship with God in prayer, and that occasionally you get the joy of leading somebody to Jesus. And once in a while, God will answer a prayer, maybe a selected prayer that seems to impress Him a lot, but you're just barely making it through and you're hanging on as best you can to your Christian faith. My friend, God does not intend for it to be that way. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it full to overflowing. And the reason that your heart ought to overflow with praise is because God has promised that He would give you all sufficiency in all things, that He would supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, the shepherd wants the sheep to prosper. He wants the sheep to get fat. He wants the sheep to be well. He wants the sheep to produce wool, all right? There is a second direction that the shepherd has for the sheep. Not only does he want us to prosper, but he also wants us to be productive, productive. In other words, the shepherd is not just out there leading the sheep around, making sure they get fed, just because he doesn't like to be with human beings. He'd rather be with sheep. Now, there's some times when that might be a better option. But somebody told me, he said, I love church. It's just people I can't stand. And um, there are some people like that. They'd just rather be with sheep than living human beings. And I suppose that's right. And there are times in all of our lives when that might be an appreciated uh, kind of a vacation. But I'll tell you what, the shepherd doesn't go to all this trouble just so that he can watch the sheep get fat, just so that he can prosper them. He has a purpose in mind, and that purpose is productivity productivity. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't see them getting fat, and if he doesn't see them producing fleece, then that sheep will soon become food, but that sheep is going to produce somehow, some way. I mean, the shepherd has got that in mind for the sheep. And let me tell you something, friend. God has in mind for you in his pilgrimage in your life, not only that you prosper spiritually, not only that you have overflowing resources to meet every need in this life, but he does that so that you can be productive as his child. Now, let me give you just one illustration of that. Some of you would say, well, I don't understand how my, uh, my grief experience fits in with this. Tonight, as I continue that series on how to walk with God, I'm going to be preaching a message entitled, How to Walk with God Through Discouragement. And somebody might say, well, I've gone through some days of discouragement, and I don't see how those are going to be useful. I mean, I've trusted God, and He's brought me through, but how are those going to be useful and make me productive? Well, in 2 Corinthians, for instance, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this, that God, listen, is the God of all comfort. Now listen to how he comforts us. Who comforts us in all of our afflictions. That word afflictions means our narrow places where the vice is squeezing us. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that, uh-oh, there's a purpose here, so that we might comfort others also with the same comfort with which we have been comforted of God. And so it's not that he just wants to comfort you. It's not just that he wants to supply every need of your life. It's not just that he wants to prosper you, but he has a purpose in your prosperity, and it is productivity. He wants you to comfort others also with the same comfort with which you've been comforted of God. Let me give you a beautiful illustration of this that's just fresh on my mind. Yesterday evening, getting back into town, 
I uh, wanted to go see little Shelley Scott, the little 12-year-old girl, member of our church. Uh, her her uh, daddy and mother, Greg and Carol, are uh, just such dear people. And her grandmother and granddaddy, Jim and Joy Alexander in our church. And as you know, last week, Shelley was struck by lightning. And uh, every part of her system just shut down. And then she fell and took a tremendous blow to the head. And there she is in a coma uh, there in Children's Hospital. And so I went up to the hospital to see her. And I uh, thought driving up there, in fact, I, I think I even made this comment to Jeannie. I said, you know, Bill and Kathy Spain ought to minister to this family because Bill and Kathy's son, Billy, who's here, and who's getting married this year, the Lord willing, um, the, their son was in a very severe automobile accident and lay in a coma. And I asked Bill this last night. I said, Bill, how long was he there without any visible response? He said, seven weeks. In fact, I remember them sending a physician to talk to me to say, call the Spains and tell them there is no hope. They need to give up. And when I called them, they said, but we have a Bible promise. And they climbed up on that Bible promise and God just worked miraculously in their son's life. And so I said, you know, they know about these brain traumas when a person takes a tremendous blow to the head and they know about the symptoms and the results and how to pray and how to minister. And wouldn't it be good if Bill and Kathy could come up here to the hospital room and minister to them? But they're on vacation. They're in Red River, New Mexico, where Bill's catching all this wonderful trout up there and freezing in that cold weather while we were sweltering here. And when I got to the hospital, you know who was there? Bill and Kathy had come back a day early, and Bill and Kathy were in the hospital room, and they were saying to Greg and Carol and Jim and Joy, let us tell you what it's like to walk with God through these days when your child has received a seriously inflicted, inflicted trauma to the head. What were they doing? Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Why? Just so we can sit around and get fat and sassy and say, Lord, thank you. You owe it to us. No, he has a purpose so that we might comfort others also with the same comfort with which we're comforted of God. Now, you're interested in God's prospering you. God is interested in your being productive in your life. Now, let me ask you this question. How have you let God use the experiences, both the blessed times and the burden times, to minister to other people. All right? There is design in the direction of your life. But here's a second statement. There is danger. There is danger in the desires of your life. Let me say it again. There is danger in the desires of your life. Now, if you'll listen carefully, you're about to discover why many individuals who seem to be so prosperous spiritually suddenly make a catastrophic decision and seemingly get totally out of the will of God. And some of you are going to discover, if you'll listen carefully, why it is that you were doing so well, and while you were doing so well, you suddenly found yourself so helplessly involved in sins that were taking you away from God. And you said, how could this happen? Here I was ministering, I was teaching, or I was preaching, or I was sharing my faith, or I was involved in evangelism explosion. I was doing so well, and then in the midst of that, how could this happen if God really cares for me? How could it happen just with a turn that I found myself inextricably bound up in sin, and and I couldn't seem to get back to God. If you'll listen carefully, I believe you'll discover that the Scripture will explain why. You see, there are dangers in the desires of your life. The problem with sheep is that sheep, literal physical sheep, 
can easily grow complacent. As a fact, matter of fact, their natural tendencies, just like your natural tendencies and my natural tendencies, is to grow complacent. As a matter of fact, just simply to give ourselves to those things which will make our lives comfortable. And so this first desire of ours is a dangerous desire. What is it? It is the desire that leads to complacency. In other words, we get to the point where we just think, well, it is the shepherds, it is the Lord's responsibility to take care of all my needs and all my wants, and I'm going to give, it, give myself to fulfilling my desires. Would you listen carefully? Do you know that some people look upon success succeeding in the work of God, not as the end, but as a means to an end, the end being their comfort. Now, let me show you this in a secular fashion. I have discovered that there are many people who, for instance, want to move up the ladder in a corporation, not so that they can accomplish more, but so they can receive more for what they do. For instance, there are those who want a graduated or an escalated position, not because they really desire to serve that corporation more, but because it's just, they, they want a better office, it'll be more comfortable, and they, and they would like to get out of the rut of being the one that's told what to do. They'd like to become one of the tellers. I want to tell people what to do. And the idea is that the higher I move up that corporate structure, the less I really have to do that will be taxing, that will be demanding on me. And so the reason they want to succeed is so that actually they can do less. Now let me bring this right down to home. I wonder if there are those here whose goal in terms of succeeding in your work, your, your work out there, whether it's working for uh, some military establishment, whether it's working in a local office, whether it's working in some mechanics position, whatever it is. I wonder how many people to whom I'm speaking would say, the reason I want to do so well is because I want to retire well. I want to move as far as I can, as fast as I can, because my goal is to quit in style. My big goal in life is what? To quit. Now, I can't think of anything that, that has been bred into our American system that is so destructive to productivity. But the idea is do as good as you can, as quickly as you can, so you can quit as soon as you can and do it in style. Now, the sad thing is that doesn't just happen in corporations. That happens in the Christian life. That happens in the Christian life. Lord, uh, okay, I'm going to hurry up and I'm going to get through this evangelism explosion training so that I can say I've had it and they will get off my back. The preacher will quit telling me that I need to be leading people to Jesus. I can say I've had EE and I've gone visiting. I'm going to teach this year so nobody can ever say you've never been a teacher. I'll assume this responsibility as a deacon so nobody ever can say you've never been a servant in the church. But there will come a time when I'm going to lay down my tools because my big goal is to quit. I want to get fat so I can get sassy. 
And that's exactly one of the dangerous desires of the sheep, to grow complacent, to grow complacent. That is, I am not in this world from the day I'm born till the day I die to bring glory to God and to expand His kingdom, to grow complacent. Now, that happens to sheep, but it also happens to God's sheep in this auditorium. Secondly, not only complacency, but carelessness. See, the more complacent you become, the more careless you become. Now, let me explain this. And I hope that God will communicate this picture to you. Did you know that the shepherd has a dilemma? Because in tending the sheep, on the one hand, he wants the sheep to prosper, to grow. He wants that sheep to have a full, luxuriant coat of wool. But did you know that the more that sheep grows and has a tendency to become complacent, doesn't want to walk as far, doesn't want to go to the trouble to get to the green pastures, would rather the sheep just fill up the sheep cups and he could drink of it rather than having to actually walk down that precipitous trail to get that deep, cool running water. The more that happens, the more dangerously the sheep actually is living because in one careless moment, that sheep can become what we read about as being cast. Now, Shepherd will tell you that a sheep can become cast very easily. Here's how it happens. Especially the more heavy a sheep is. Uh, especially, uh, uh, if you take a, a big old ewe that is pregnant and her coat is luxurious, she's very heavy, she can, can become cast just like that. Now, what does it mean to become cast, all right? The sheep lies down like a sheep is supposed to lie down. But the sheep lies down in a hollowed-out place. It's looked for a good, comfortable place to quit. And in seeking to take one more turn to become just a little bit more comfortable, suddenly that sheep, it's like those uh, boxing matches where you have sand in the bottom so they'll always come back upright. Suddenly that sheep will find itself over on its back with all four feet in the air. Now that's called being cast. And did you know that when a sheep is cast, it cannot under any circumstances save itself? The moment a sheep is cast, that sheep literally begins to die. It can take hours, depending on the temperature and the moisture in the air, it can take hours sometimes if there's clouds, it can take days. But the moment vultures see a sheep cast, that is a sheep over on its back, all four feet in the air, those vultures begin to circle. As a matter of fact, the shepherd gets up every morning, he looks to see that all of his sheep are up and on their feet because a cast sheep will die. There's no other, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. A sheep that is cast will die. Now, here's what I'm saying. In your attempt to prosper, in your attempt to do what you do, not so you can be productive, but so that you can, get, can, can enjoy comfortable lifestyle, very often a Christian will take one more little turn and discover himself hopelessly, helplessly away from God. And he can hardly figure it out. Just a decision. Maybe it's something you purchase that takes you away, that gets your heart. Maybe it's some, something that you intend to enjoy, and you're so bent on it that it becomes the God of your life. Maybe it is some plan of yours, something you're going to do, and you get involved in it, and it takes you away from God. And something starts dying within you, and you find yourself like a sheep. You find yourself cast in soul. You can't make your mind want to work. Your emotions can't desire it hard enough. You can't make enough decisions to get back to God like you want to get back to God. Now, let me give you an illustration. I have a friend in the ministry. 
whose desire was to succeed. He has every heart. Every, in fact, as long as I've known him, his heart has been after God. He wanted to succeed. He wanted people to come to know Jesus. The result is that he began to prosper everywhere he went. I mean, he began to pastor churches that would grow, and every time he would go there, they would just grow. Secondarily to all this, he had a hobby. Now, this hobby was related to a particular sport. And that hobby began to attract him more and more. I mean, it just got his attention. And finally, he found himself in a position, ministerially-wise, where he could choose either to throw his efforts into the ministry and to continue fashioning, or without anybody getting on his case, anybody knowing different, to enjoy that hobby a little bit more. It had to do with hunting. Did you know there came a moment when he became with one extra twist? As a matter of fact, I think it was an invitation to go on a particular hunt. He found himself cast. As a matter of fact, sometime after that, I asked him what his greatest goal was. It had nothing to do with the ministry. It had to do with killing a particular kind of animal with a particular kind of weapon. Now you say, oh, shame on that minister. Shame on anybody in this auditorium who in your attempt to get comfortable, you never thought of it. You said, oh, this has got to come from God. I mean, look how God's blessed me. I've got this money. I can buy this. I can drive this. I can live in this. I can wear this. And suddenly you found yourself having made that decision, one more little twist, and all of a sudden you found yourself not loving God as much, not serving Him as actively. In fact, the things you did to become comfortable uh, make church and your involvement in it an aggravation to your life. Whereas once it was exciting, now it has become an aggravation to you. And now, horror of horrors, you want to get back to God. You would love for it to be the way it used to be, but you can't make yourself get back to God. You are cast. You see, there are dangers in the desires of our life. One final statement. You see, some here are cast down in soul. Your intellect cannot make you choose to do it, your emotions, you say, well, I, I sure would like, but I don't know that I want to give up what I've gotten involved in. I enjoy the things that I've gotten myself in. I'm very comfortable, and it's just easier for me to live this way. I, I don't really have to gut it out anymore. I don't have to be strenuous anymore in my Christian faith. I mean, I don't think so much in terms anymore of praying and fasting and, and serving the Lord and pray all night prayer meetings and, and, and getting down there and, and, and beating the bush to see people come to know Jesus as their Savior. I, that doesn't feel to me anymore. I have become so, so materially and spiritually comfortable that I can just enjoy the Christian life. I can roll up my sleeves and mess with a little bit without having to totally give my life to serving the Lord. Now, perhaps you have awakened to the reality of that and said, how do I get back? What happens when I can't make it back? And so you've tried to get back. You've tried to make your way back to God. You've tried to love Him like you used to love Him. You've tried to serve Him like you used to serve Him. But the truth of the matter is you cannot crank those emotions up. No amount of intellectual gymnastics has worked for you. Well, I've got good news for you. He restoreth my soul. Now, here is the good news. There is dependability in the deliverer of your life. That's the third thing I want to say. There is dependability in the deliverer of your life. He restoreth my soul. That is a promise the shepherd makes to the sheep. It is a commitment the Lord God has made to you. He restoreth my soul. You see, we're big on talking about the fact that in terms of salvation, God is sovereign. 
But let me tell you something else, friend. In terms of sanctification, that means living the ever-increasingly effective Christian life in terms of sanctification, he is also sovereign. He is also sovereign. He restoreth my soul. Now, the shepherd has made a commitment to you. He's made a commitment to you. It's a twofold commitment. Here it is. First of all, he has committed himself to restricting your life. Restricting your life. Did you know something? Now, listen. Did you know that if a shepherd really cares for his sheep, on some occasions he may have to go out in the flock and find that sheep that is his biggest and best and has the most luxuriant wool. And in order to keep that sheep alive, that shepherd has to shear off that wool and throw it away. Matted and heavy with mud, it has become that which keeps that sheep over on its back again and again and again. And just to keep that sheep alive, the shepherd will strip off the things of which that sheep is the most proud. And some of you here are wondering why at the height of your ministry, at the height of your glory, I mean when things were going good and you were so prosperous and you were helping the church and you were helping other people and you were giving this and you were giving that and it was all so wonderful and then the boom went bust and now you found yourself stripped of everything you could ever brag about. My friend, listen, look upon that as a commitment of a sovereign, loving shepherd to your life to keep you from becoming cast down. He will restrict your life. And the shepherd is determined that the heavier the sheep, then the more strenuous the daily exercise. And it could be that you've discovered that instead of being able to enjoy all the things that have come your way, that God is putting you through the paces. Well, you better thank God for that because that is his way to keep you from becoming cast down. Now, Paul said that. The apostle Paul could have said something like this. I don't understand God. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm the biggest, most important missionary that ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, touched two-thirds of the Mediterranean world in 10 years with the gospel. Nobody else has ever done that. And in, in the midst of my bigness, in the midst of the fact that every, my name was on everybody, everybody's lips, I started churches here and there and everywhere. In the midst of all of that, I got this stupid, uh, 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 well, it's a, like an angel from Satan. It's a messenger from Satan. It's just sent to buffet me. It's a physical affliction. And I don't understand God because I was doing so well. And I went to him, I went to him three times and asked him to remove that restriction in my life. And you know, God didn't do that. Boy, he's missing a good thing with me. If I was good and healthy, if I could do everything I wanted to, man, I'd be out there. I'd set the world on fire. Is that what Paul said? Paul said this. He said, I have discovered after praying three times that God would remove this messenger of Satan, that God said, no, sir, Paul, that's my restriction in your life. If you didn't have that restriction, listen, you would become cast. You'd be over on your back and I couldn't use you because you'd be so proud and puffed up and full of vain glory. I've let you have it so that you will not glory in the flesh and so that every day you stay alive, you've got to trust in me. And so the shepherd loves you so much he will commit himself to restricting you. But listen, suppose you're cast. Listen, friend, he has committed himself to restoring you. He has committed himself to restoring you. He turns back my soul, my mind, my emotions, and my will. He restoreth my soul. It's an act of grace. And so I have good news this morning for those of you who say it's not like it used to be. 
And I'm even having trouble making myself want to go through the paces. I'm having my, trouble making myself want to lead people to Jesus, want to study the Bible, want to pray. And I'm so, I'm so cast down because of this, because, well, it's troubling to me because that fervor has gone, that desire has gone, and I can't muster it up. I can't even want to want to get it right any longer. I got good news for you, friend. The shepherd's looking for you right now. The shepherd's looking for you right now. Just like that shepherd who left his 99 in the wilderness and went out to find that sheep, he will find you. He may just be waiting for you to quit kicking. You see, when a sheep gets cast, the first thing it does is panics. Man, those feet just fly. And finally, that sheep realizes in resignation, I can't do anything about this. And he may be waiting for you this morning in this worship service to say, Dear God, forgive me. I can't do anything about it. I can't restore my own soul. Would you please come get me and restore my soul? That's a promise of revival for you, dear friend. And I pray that your heart will reach out this morning and lock onto that promise and say, Dear God, here I am, cast. Please come get me as an act of grace. Would you bow your head? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit now will move in power. Father, all across this auditorium are your sheep. Many of whom would say, That's me, I'm cast. In the midst of my spiritual and material prosperity when things were going so well and it looked like nothing could happen that would ever cause that relationship to cool, I suddenly found myself cast down, unable to get up, try as I might, thinking perhaps maybe I need more rigid discipline, maybe I need another program, maybe I need more study. I can't even make myself want to become more involved. Lord, your sheep are calling out to you this morning. We need you to restore the soul of each sheep here who's cast. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We've come now to a very important time in this worship service, invitation time. Some of you cast down in your soul know precisely what you ought to do. I mean, this preacher ought not to have to say another word already. As people will come, you just stand up, make your way to this altar and say, Dear God, I'm one of those sheep over on my back. My legs have flailed in the air. I've done all that I could, but I realize I can't make my way back to you. You're going to have to come get me. You're going to have to come get me. I'm cast down as a sovereign act of your grace, dear shepherd. I am praying that you would come fetch me this morning. Write me. Massage those spiritual limbs which have grown cold and the circulation has grown weak in it. And Lord, set me up on my feet again that I might serve you. If you this morning know that you need to make that decision, I would urge you, even as I'm speaking now, get up quickly, make your way to this altar, and just acknowledge to the Lord your cast. I'm cast down. I cannot do it myself. That flies in the face of our arrogance and pride. But God resists the proud, proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you would humble yourself this morning in that simple admission, I am a cast sheep, then I urge you, make your way quickly, as others are, to this altar to just call out to God and say, it will have to be an act of your grace. Now, there's some of you here this morning who would say, you know, here is my problem, Brother Tom. I've never 